This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. At the turn of the 20th century, mystery writers and mysteries were the rage. Here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, we've introduced a number of stories featuring Sherlock Holmes, as well as Agatha Christie stories featuring the vain Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. In 1906, one of my favorite authors, Robert Barr, also released a collection of detective short stories featuring a vain French detective who was working in London, and his name is Eugene Valmont. The stories are very good. He offered a book of eight short stories called The Triumphs of Eugene Valmont, and today we're going to share the first of those stories, which is The Mystery of the 500 Diamonds. In all of Robert Barr's Eugene Valmont mysteries, Valmont is working in London, and solving mysterious cases involving international intrigue, counterfeiting, stolen jewels, blackmail, and ghosts. And now, Part 1 of The Mystery of the 500 Diamonds by Robert Barr When I say I am called Velmont, the name will convey no impression to the reader, one way or the other. My occupation is that of a private detective in London, but if you ask any policeman in Paris who Velmont was he will likely be able to tell you, unless he is a recent recruit. If you ask him where Valmont is now, he may not know, yet I have a good deal to do with the Parisian police. For a period of seven years I was chief detective for the government of France, and if I am unable to prove myself a great crime hunter, it is because the record of my career is in the secret archives of Paris. I may admit at the outset that I have no grievances to air, the French government considered itself justified in dismissing me, and it did so. In this action it was quite within its right, and I should be the last to dispute that right. But, on the other hand, I consider myself justified in publishing the following account of what actually occurred, especially as so many false rumors have been put abroad concerning the case. However, as I said at the beginning, I hold no grievance— because my worldly affairs are now much more prosperous than they were in Paris. My intimate knowledge of that city, and the country of which it is the capital, bringing to me many cases with which I have dealt more or less successfully since I established myself in London. 
"'Without further preliminary, "'I shall at once plunge into an account of the case "'which riveted the attention of the whole world "'a little more than a decade ago. "'The year 1893 was a prosperous twelve months for France. "'The weather was good, the harvest excellent, "'and the wine of that vintage is celebrated to this day. "'Everyone was well off and reasonably happy.' a marked contrast to the state of things a few years later, when dissension over the Dreyfus case rent the country in twain. Newspaper readers may remember that in 1893 the government of France fell heir to an unexpected treasure, which set the civilized world agog, especially those inhabitants of it who were interested in historical relics. This was the finding of the diamond necklace in the Chateau de Chaumont, where he had rested undiscovered for a century in a rubbish heap of an attic. I believe it has not been questioned that this was the veritable necklace which the court jeweler, Bomer, hoped to sell to Marie Antoinette, although how it came to be at the Chateau de Chaumont no one has been able to form even a conjecture. For a hundred years it was supposed that the necklace had been broken up in London, and its half a thousand stones, great and small, sold separately. It has always seemed strange to me that the Countess de Lamont Valois, who was thought to have profited by the sale of those jewels, should not have abandoned France if she possessed money to leave that country. For exposure was inevitable if she remained. Indeed, the unfortunate woman was branded and imprisoned, and afterwards was dashed to death from the third story of a London house, when, in the direst poverty, she sought escape from the consequences of the debts that she had incurred. I am not superstitious in the least, yet this celebrated piece of treasure trove seems actually to have exerted a malign influence over everyone who had the misfortune to be connected with it. Indeed, in a small way, I who write these works suffered dismissal and disgrace, though I caught but one glimpse of this dazzling scintillation of jewels. The jeweler who made the necklace met financial ruin. The queen for whom it was constructed was beheaded. That high-born prince, Louis-René Edonard, Cardinal de Rohan, who purchased it, was flung into prison. The unfortunate countess, who said she acted as go-between until the transfer was concluded, clung for five awful minutes to a London window-sill before dropping to her death to the flags below. And now, a hundred and eight years later, up comes this devil's display of fireworks to the light again. Droulard, the working man who found the ancient box, seems to have prized it open, and ignorant though he was, he had probably never seen a diamond in his life before, realized that a fortune was in his grasp. The baleful glitter from the combination must have sent madness into his brain, working havoc therein, as through the shafts of brightness were those mysterious rays which scientists have recently discovered." He might easily have walked to the main gate of the chateau unsuspected and unquestioned with the diamonds concealed about his person, but instead of this he crept from the attic window onto the steep roof, slipped to the eaves, fell to the ground, and lay dead with a broken neck, while the necklace, intact, shimmered in the sunlight beside his body. No matter where these jewels had been found, the government would have insisted that they belonged to the treasury of the Republic. But as the Chateau de Chaumont was an historical monument, and the property of France, there could be no question regarding the ownership of the necklace. The government at once claimed it, and ordered it to be sent by a trustworthy military man to Paris, 
It was carried safely and delivered promptly to the authorities by Alfred Dreyfus, a young captain of artillery, to whom its custody had been entrusted. In spite of its fall from the tall tower, neither case nor jewels were perceptibly damaged. The lock of the box had apparently been forced by Droulard's hatchet, or perhaps by the clamp knife found on his body. On reaching the ground, the lid had flown open, and the necklace was thrown out. I believe there was some discussion in the cabinet regarding the fate of this ill-omened trophy, one section wishing it to be placed in a museum on account of its historical interest, another advocating the breaking up of the necklace and the selling of the diamonds for what they would fetch. But a third party maintained that the method to get the most money into the coffers of the country was to sell the necklace as it stood. For as the world now contains so many rich amateurs who collect undoubted rarities, regardless of expense, the historic associations of the jeweled collar would enhance the intrinsic value of the stones, and the view prevailing, it was announced that the necklace would be sold by auction a month later in the rooms of Meyer, Renault, and Company, in the Boulevard des Italiennes, near the bank of the Credit Lyonnais. The announcement elicited much comment from the newspapers of all countries, and it seemed that, from a financial point of view at least, the decision of the government had been wise, for it speedily became evident that a notable coterie of wealthy buyers would be congregated in Paris on the 13th, unlucky day for me, when the sale was to take place. But we of the inner circle were made aware of another result somewhat more disquieting, which was that the most expert criminals in the world were also gathering like vultures upon the fair city. The honor of France was at stake. Whoever bought that necklace must be assured of a safe conduct out of the country. We might view with equanimity whatever happened afterwards. But while he was a resident of France, his life and property must not be endangered. Thus it came about that I was given full authority to ensure that neither murder nor theft, nor both combined, should be committed while the purchaser of the necklace remained within our boundaries and for the purpose the police resources of France were placed unreservedly at my disposal. If I failed, there should be no one to blame but myself. Consequently, as I have remarked before, I do not complain of my dismissal by the government. We'll return with Part 1 of The Mystery of the 500 Diamonds by Robert Barr right after these sponsor messages. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. And now, back to our story. The broken lock of the jewel case had been very deftly repaired by an expert locksmith, who, in executing his task, was so unfortunate as to scratch a finger on the broken metal, whereupon blood poisoning set in, and although his life was saved, he was dismissed from the hospital with his right arm gone and his usefulness destroyed. When the jeweler Bomer made the necklace, he asked 160,000 pounds for it, but after years of disappointment, he was content to sell it to Cardinal de Rohan for 64,000 pounds, to be liquidated in three installments, 
not one of which was ever paid. This latter amount was probably somewhere near the value of the 516 separate stones, one of which was of tremendous size, a very monarch of diamonds, holding its court among 17 brilliants, each as large as a filbert. A note from me, filberts are also called hazelnuts, and hazelnuts are about the size of an acorn. This iridescent concentration of wealth was, as one might say, placed in my care, and I had to see to it that no harm came to the necklace or to its prospective owner until they were safely across the boundaries of France. The four weeks previous to the 13th proved a busy and anxious time for me. Thousands, most of whom were actuated by mere curiosity, wished to view the diamonds. We were compelled to discriminate, and sometimes discriminated against the wrong person, which caused unpleasantness. Three distinct attempts were made to rob the safe, but luckily these criminal efforts were frustrated, and so we came unscathed to the eventful 13th of the month. The sale was to begin at two o'clock, and on the morning of that day I took the somewhat tyrannical precaution of having the more dangerous of our own malefactors, and as many of the foreign thieves as I could trump up charges against, laid by the heels. Yet I knew very well it was not these rascals I had most to fear, but the suave, well-groomed gentlemen, amply supplied with unimpeachable credentials, stopping at our fine hotels and living like princes. Many of these were foreigners, against whom we could prove nothing, and whose arrest might land us into temporary international difficulties. Nevertheless, I had each of them shadowed, and on the morning of the 13th, if one of them had even disputed a cab fare, I should have had him in prison half an hour later, and taken the consequences. But these gentlemen are very shrewd, and do not commit mistakes." I made up a list of all the men in the world who were able or likely to purchase the necklace. Many of them would not be present in person at the auction rooms. Their bidding would be done by agents. This simplified matters a good deal, for the agents kept me duly informed of their purposes. And besides, an agent who handles treasures every week is adept at the business, and does not need the protection which must surround an amateur who in nine cases out of ten has but scant idea of the dangers that threaten him, beyond knowing that if he goes down a dark street in a dangerous quarter, he's likely to be maltreated and robbed. There were no less than sixteen clients all told, who we learned were to attend personally on the day of the sale, any one of whom might well have made the purchase. The Marquis of Wallingham and Lord Oxted from England were well-known jewel fanciers, while well, at least half a dozen millionaires were expected from the United States, with a smattering from Germany, Austria, and Russia, and one each from Italy, Belgium, and Holland. Admission to the auction rooms was allowed by ticket only, to be applied for at least a week in advance, applications to be accompanied by satisfactory testimonials. It would possibly have surprised many of the rich men collected there to know that they sat cheek by jowl with some of the most noted thieves of England and America. But I allowed this for two reasons. First, I wished to keep those sharpers under my own eye until I knew who had bought the necklace. And secondly, I was desirous that they should not know they were suspected. I stationed trusty men outside on the Boulevard des Italiennes, each of whom knew by sight most of the probable purchasers of the necklace. It was arranged that when the sale was over I should walk out to the boulevard alongside the man who was the new owner of the diamonds, 
and from that moment, until he quitted France, my men were not to lose sight of him, if he took personal custody of the stones, instead of doing the sensible and proper thing of having them insured and forwarded to his residence by some responsible transit company, or depositing them in the bank. In fact, I took every precaution that occurred to me. All police Paris was on the alert, and felt itself pitted against the scoundrels of the world. For one reason or another, it was nearly half-past two before the sale began. There had been considerable delay because of forged tickets, and indeed, each order for admittance was so closely scrutinized that this in itself took a good deal more time than we anticipated. Every chair was occupied, and still a number of the visitors were compelled to stand. I stationed myself by the swinging doors at the entrance end of the hall, where I could command a view of the entire assemblage. Some of my men were placed with backs against the wall, while others were distributed amongst the chairs, all in plain clothes. During the sale the diamonds themselves were not displayed, but the box containing them rested in front of the auctioneer, and three policemen in uniform stood guard on either side. Very quietly the auctioneer began by saying that there was no need for him to expatiate on the notable character of the treasure he was privileged to offer for sale, and with this preliminary he requested those present to bid. Someone offered twenty thousand francs, which was received with much laughter. Then the bidding went steadily on until it reached nine hundred thousand francs, which I knew to be less than half the reserve the government had placed upon the necklace. The contest advanced more slowly until the million and a half was touched, and there it hung fire for a time, while the auctioneer remarked that this sum did not equal that which the maker of the necklace had been finally forced to accept for it. After another pause he added that, as the reserve was not exceeded, the necklace would be withdrawn, and probably never again offered for sale. He therefore urged those who were holding back to make their bids now. At this the contest livened until the sum of two million three hundred thousand francs had been offered, and now I knew the necklace would be sold. Nearing the three million mark, the competition thinned down to a few dealers from Hamburg, and the Marquis of Warlingham from England, when a voice that had not yet been heard in the auction room was lifted in a tone of some impatience. One million dollars! There was an instant hush, followed by the scribbling of pencils, as each person present reduced the sum to its equivalent in his own currency. Pounds for the English, francs for the French, marks for the German, and so on. The aggressive tone and the clear-cut face of the bidder proclaimed him as American, not less than the financial denomination he had used. In a moment it was realized that his bid was a clear leap of more than two million francs, and a sigh went up from the audience as if this settled it, and the great sale was done. Nevertheless, the auctioneer's hammer hovered over the lid of his desk, and he looked up and down the long line of faces turned toward him. He seemed reluctant to tap the board, but no one ventured to compete against this tremendous sum, and with a sharp click, the mallet fell. What name? he asked, bending over towards the customer. Cash, replied the American. Here's a check for the amount. I'll take the diamonds with me. Your request is somewhat unusual, protested the auctioneer mildly. I know what you mean, interrupted the American. You think the check may not be cashed. You will notice it is drawn on the Credit Lyonnais, which is practically next door. I must have the jewels with me. Send round your messenger with the check. 
"'It will take you only a few minutes "'to find out whether or not the money is there to meet it. "'The necklace is mine, and I insist on having it.' "'The auctioneer, with some demure, "'handed the check to the representative of the French government "'to his present, and this official himself went to the bank. "'There were some other things to be sold, "'and the auctioneer endeavored to go on through the list, "'but no one paid the slightest attention to him.' Meanwhile, I was studying the countenance of the man who had made the astounding bid, when I should instead have adjusted my preparation to meet the new conditions now confronting me. Here was a man about whom we knew nothing whatever. I had come to the instant conclusion that he was a prince of criminals, and that a sinister design, not at that moment fathomed by me, was on foot to get possession of the jewels. The handing up of the check was clearly a trick of some sort, "'and I fully expected the official to return "'and say the draft was good. "'I determined to prevent this man "'from getting the jewel box "'until I knew more of his game. "'Quickly I removed from my place near the door "'to the auctioneer's desk, "'having two objects in view. First, to warn the auctioneer "'not to part with the treasure too easily, "'and second, to study the suspected man "'at closer range. "'Of all evildoers, "'the American is most to be feared.' He uses more ingenuity in the planning of his projects, and will take greater risks in carrying them out than any other malefactor on earth. From my new station I saw there were two men to deal with. The bidder's face was keen and intellectual, his hands refined, almost ladylike, clean and white, showing they were long divorced from manual labor, if indeed they had ever done any useful work. Coolness and imperturbability were his beyond a doubt. The companion who sat at his right was of an entirely different stamp. His hands were hairy and sun-tanned. His face bore the stamp of grim determination and unflinching bravery. I knew that these two types usually hunted in couples, the one to scheme, the other to execute, and they always formed a combination dangerous to encounter and difficult to circumvent. There was a buzz of conversation up and down the hall as these two men talked together in low tones. I knew now that I was face to face with the most hazardous problem of my life. I whispered to the auctioneer, who bent his head to listen. He knew very well who I was, of course. "'You must not give up the necklace,' I began. He shrugged his shoulders. "'I am under orders from the official from the Ministry of the Interior. You must speak to him.' "'I shall not fail to do so,' I replied. "'Nevertheless, do not give up the box too readily.' "'I am helpless,' he protested with another shrug. "'I obey the orders of the government.' Seeing it was useless to parley further with the auctioneer, I set my wits to work to meet the new emergency. I felt convinced that the check would prove to be genuine, and that the fraud, wherever it lay, might not be disclosed in time to aid the authorities.' My duty, therefore, was to make sure we lost sight neither of the buyer nor the thing bought. Of course, I could not arrest the purchaser merely on suspicion. Besides, it would make the government the laughingstock of the world if they sold a case of jewels and immediately placed the buyer in custody when they themselves had handed over his goods to him. Ridicule kills in France. A breath of laughter may blow a government out of existence in Paris, "'much more effectually than will a whiff of cannon smoke. "'My duty, then, was to give the government full warning, "'and 
had never lose sight of my man until he was clear of France, and at that point my responsibility ended. I took aside one of my own men in plain clothes and said to him, "'You have seen the American who has bought the necklace?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Very well. Go outside quietly and station yourself there. He is likely to emerge presently with the jewels in his possession. You are not to lose sight of either the man or the casket.' I shall follow him and be close behind him as he emerges, and you are to shadow us. If he parts with the case, you must be ready at a sign from me to follow either the man or the jewels. Do you understand? Yes, sir, he answered, and left the room. It is ever the unforeseen that baffles us. It is easy to be wise after the event. I should have sent two men, and I have often thought since— "'How admirable is the regulation of the Italian government "'which sends out its policemen in pairs. "'Or I should have given my men power to call for help. "'But even as it was, he did only half as well "'as I had a right to expect of him, "'and the blunder he commuted by a moment's dull-witted hesitation. "'Ah, well, there's no use of scolding. "'After all, the result might have been the same.' Just as my man disappeared between the two folding doors, the official from the Ministry of the Interior entered. I intercepted him about halfway on his journey from the door to the auctioneer. Possibly the check appears to be genuine, I whispered to him. But certainly, he replied pompously. He was an individual greatly impressed with his own importance, a kind of character with which it is always difficult to deal. Afterwards, the government asserted that this official had warned me, and the utterances of an empty-headed ass dressed in a little brief authority, as the English poet says, were looked upon as the epitome of wisdom. I advise you strongly not to hand over the necklace, as has been requested. I went on. Why? he asked. Because I am convinced the bidder is a criminal. If you have proof of that, arrest him. I have no proof at the present moment, but I request you to delay the delivery of the goods. That is absurd, he cried impatiently. The necklace is his, not ours. The money has already been transferred to the account of the government. We cannot retain the five million francs, and refuse to hand over to him what he has brought with them. And so the man left me standing there, nonplussed and anxious. The eyes of everyone in the room had been turned on us during our brief conversation, and now the official proceeded ostentatiously up the room with a grand air of importance. Then, with a bow and a flourish of the hand, he said dramatically, "'The jewels belong to monsieur.' The two Americans rose simultaneously, the taller holding out his hand, while the auctioneer passed to him the case he had apparently paid so highly for. The American nonchalantly opened the box, and for the first time the electric radiance of the jewels burst upon that audience, each number of which craned his neck to behold it. It seemed to me a most reckless thing to do. He examined the jewels minutely for a few minutes, then snapped the lid shut again, and calmly put the box in his outside pocket, and I could not help noticing that the light overcoat he wore possessed pockets made extraordinarily large, as if on purpose for this very case." And now this amazing man walked serenely down the room past miscreants who joyfully would have cut his throat for even the smallest diamond in that conglomeration. 
yet he did not take the trouble to put his hand on the pocket which contained the case, or in any way attempt to protect it. The assemblage seemed stricken dumb by his audacity. His friend followed closely at his heels, and the tall man disappeared through the folding doors. Not so the other. He turned quickly, and whipped two revolvers out of his pockets, which he presented to the astonished crowd. There had been a movement on the part of everyone to leave the room, but the sight of those deadly weapons confronting them made each one shrink into his place again. The man with his back to the door spoke in a loud and domineering voice, asking the auctioneer to translate what he had to say into French and German. He spoke in English. "'These here shiners are valuable. They belong to my friend who has just gone out. Casting no reflections on the generality of people in this room, there are nevertheless half a dozen crooks among us whom my friend wishes to avoid. Now, no honest man here will object to giving the buyer of that there trinket five clear minutes in which to get away. It's only the crooks that can kick. I ask these five minutes as a favor, but if they're not granted, I'm going to take them as a right. Any man who moves will get shot. I am an honest man, I cried, and I object. I am chief detective of the French government. Stand aside. The police will protect your friend. Hold on, my son, warned the American, turning one weapon directly upon me, while the other held a sort of roving commission, pointing all over the room. My friend is from New York, and he distrusts the police as much as he does the grafters. You may be twenty detectives, but if you move before that clock strikes three, I'll bring you down, and don't you forget it. It is one thing to face death in a fierce struggle, but quite another to advance coldly upon it toward the muzzle of a pistol held so steadily that there could be no chance of escape. The gleam of determination in the man's eyes convinced me he meant what he said. I did not consider then, nor have I considered since, that the next five minutes, precious as they were, would be worth paying my life for. Apparently everyone else was of my opinion, for none moved hand or foot until the clock slowly struck three. "'Thank you, gentlemen,' said the American, as he vanished between the spring doors. "'When I say vanished, I mean that word, and no other, because my men outside saw nothing of this individual then or later. He vanished as if he'd never existed.' and it was some hours before we found out how he had accomplished this. I rushed out almost on his heels, as one might say, and hurriedly questioned my waiting men. They had all seen the tall American come out with the greatest leisure and stroll towards the west. As he was not the man any of them were looking for, they paid no further attention to him, as indeed is the custom with our Parisian force. They have eyes for nothing but what they are sent to look for, "'and this trait has its drawbacks for their superiors.' "'I ran up the boulevard, "'my whole thought intent on the diamonds and their owner. "'I knew my subordinate in command of the men inside the hall "'would look after the scoundrel with the pistols. "'A short distance up, "'I found the stupid fellow I had sent out, "'standing in a dazed manner at the corner of the Rue Michaudière, "'gazing alternately down that short street "'and toward the Place de l'Opera. The fact that he was there furnished proof that he had failed. "'Where's the American?' I demanded. "'He went down the street, sir.' "'Then why are you standing here?' "'I followed him this far, when a man came up the Rue Michaudière 
and without a word the American handed him the jewel-box, turning instantly down the street up which the other had come. The other jumped into a cab and drove towards the Place de l'Opera. "'And what did you do? Stood here like a post, I suppose.' "'I didn't know what to do, sir. It all happened in a moment.' "'Why didn't you follow the cab?' "'I didn't know which to follow, sir, "'and the cab was gone instantly while I watched the American.' "'What was its number?' "'I don't know, sir.' "'You clod! "'Why didn't you call one of our men, "'whoever was nearest, "'and leave him to shadow the American "'while you followed the cab?' "'I did shout to the nearest man, sir, "'but he said you told him to stay there "'and watch the English lord, "'and even before he had spoken, "'both American and cabman were out of sight. "'Was the man to whom he gave the box "'an American also?' "'No, sir, he was French.' "'How do you know that?' "'By his appearance and the words he spoke.' "'I thought you said he didn't speak.' "'He did not speak to the American, sir, "'but he said to the cabman, "'Drive to the Madeline as quickly as you can.' "'Describe him.' "'He was a head shorter than the American, "'wore a black beard and moustache rather neatly trimmed, "'and seemed to be a superior sort of artisan.' "'You did not take the number of the cab.' "'Should you know the cabman if you saw him again?' "'Yes, sir, I think so.' "'Taking this fellow with me, "'I returned to the now nearly empty auction room, "'and there gathered all my men about me. "'Each in his notebook took down particulars of the cabman "'and his passenger from the lips of my incompetent spy. "'Next I dictated a full description of the two Americans, "'then scattered my men to the various railway stations "'of the lines leading out of Paris.' with orders to make inquiries of the police on duty there, and to arrest one or more of the four persons described should they be so fortunate as to find any of them. I now learned how the rogue with the pistols vanished so completely as he did. My subordinate in the auction room had speedily solved the mystery. To the left of the main entrance of the auction room was a door that gave private access to the rear of the premises. As the attendant in charge confessed when questioned, he had been bribed by the American earlier in the day to leave this side door open and to allow the man to escape by the goods entrance. Thus the ruffian did not appear on the boulevard at all, and so had not been observed by any of my men. Taking my futile spy with me, I returned to my own office and sent an order throughout the city that every cabman who had been in the boulevard d'Italien between half-past two and half-past three that afternoon should report immediately to me. The examination of these men proved a very tedious business indeed, but whatever other countries may say of us, we French are patient, and if the haystack is searched long enough, that needle will be found. I did not discover the needle I was looking for, but I came upon one quite as important, if not more so. It was nearly ten o'clock at night when a cabman answered my oft-repeated questions in the affirmative. "'Did you take up a passenger a few minutes past three o'clock "'on the Boulevard d'Italien, near the Credit Lyonnais? "'Had he a short black beard? "'Did he carry a small box in his hand "'and order you to drive to the Madeleine?' "'The cabman seemed puzzled. "'He wore a short black beard when he got out of the cab,' he replied. "'What do you mean by that?' "'I drive a closed cab, sir. "'When he got in, he was a smooth-faced gentleman.' When he got out, he wore a short black beard. Was he a Frenchman? No, sir, he was a foreigner, either English or American. 
"'Was he carrying a box?' "'No, sir. He held in his hand a small leather bag.' "'Where did he tell you to drive?' "'He told me to follow the cab in front, "'which had just driven off very rapidly towards the Madeleine. "'In fact, I heard the man, such as you describe, "'order the other cab man to drive to the Madeleine. "'I'd come alongside the curb "'when this man held up his hand for a cab, "'but the open cab cut in ahead of me. "'Just then my passenger stepped up and said in French, "'but with a foreign accent, "'Follow that cab wherever it goes.' I turned with some indignation to my inefficient spy. "'You told me,' I said, "'that the American had gone down a side street. "'Yet he evidently met a second man, "'obtained from him the handbag, turned back, "'and got into the closed cab directly behind you.' "'Well, sir,' stammered the spy, "'I could not look in two directions at the same time. "'The American certainly went down the side street, "'but of course I watched the cab which contained the jewels.' "'and you saw nothing of the closed cab right at your elbow. "'The boulevard was full of cabs, sir, "'and the pavement crowded with passers-bys, "'as it always is at that hour of the day, "'and I have only two eyes in my head. "'I'm glad to know you had that many, "'for I was beginning to think you were blind. "'Although I said this, "'I knew in my heart it was useless to censure the poor wretch, "'for the fault was entirely my own "'in not sending two men.' "'and then failing to guess the possibility of the jewels "'and their owner being separated. "'Besides, here was a clue to my hand at last, "'and no time must be lost in following it up. "'So I continued my interrogation of the cabman. "'The other cab was an open vehicle, you say?' "'Yes, sir.' "'You succeeded in following it?' "'Oh, yes, sir. "'Did he carry a small box in his hand "'and order you to drive to the Madeline?' "'Oh, yes, sir.' At the Madeleine, the man in front redirected the coachman, who turned to the left and drove to the Place de la Concorde, then up the Champs-Élysées to the Arch, and so down the avenue to the Grand Armée, and the Avenue de Neuilly, to the Pont de Neuilly, where it came to a standstill, and I saw he now wore a short black beard, which he had evidently put on inside the cab. He gave me a ten-franc piece, which was very satisfactory. And the fare you were following, what did he do? He also stepped out, paid the cabman, went down the bank of the river, and got on board a steam launch that seemed to be waiting for him. Did he look behind, or appear to know that he was being followed? No, sir. And your fare? He ran after the first man, and also went aboard the steam launch, which instantly started down the river. And that was the last you saw of them? Yes, sir. Thanks for joining us for part one of Robert Barr's The Mystery of the 500 Diamonds. I couldn't resist doing some research to find out if Barr's detective character Eugene Valmont, the somewhat vain French chief detective, was an inspiration for Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. The timeline fits. He wrote this in 1906, and Christie's detective, the very vain Belgian detective, came later. Robert Barr was already an established writer and editor of a popular London magazine by 1906. And as mentioned at the start of the story, detective stories were all the rage, as they still are today. Interestingly, Barr published the first Sherlock Holmes parody, Detective Stories Gone Wrong, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, also known as The Pegram Mystery, in his magazine The Idler in 1892 and followed it in 1894 with the adventure of the second swag. And I have duly noted these two for some ideas for the weeks ahead. 
I hope you're enjoying the chase here in this story, and the fact that the entire French police force has been turned out to catch an American who, for all we know, fairly paid for a diamond necklace and just wants to get back home in one piece. But some twists may be in the work to come in part two. So, enjoy. By the way, all listeners, if you're Spotify listeners, you can leave comments on any episode you like, and I'll try to get to them. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.